Welcome to the Inside Out Project. Thank you for joining us. And joining me today uh, is Trisha uh, Joe St. Meyer from Justice News Network. And joining me uh, and Trisha is Trent Michael Taylor from Justice News Network. And my name is Imran Siddiqui. And I am also from Justice News Network. And today we have a special case to talk about, which is the case of uh, John Merritt. And uh, the weird thing uh, about this case that I will present to my colleague, Trisha, and to my colleague, uh, Trent, and to you, our listeners and the audience, the, the weirdest thing that you will find uh, about this case is uh, there's not a lot of data on, on this guy. And whatever that is that you will see is, is, is limited. Uh, but thanks to God, thanks to God, we were able to uh, find something. So let me just give you a background about back, a background about John Merritt. So, first of all, thank you for having us, Imran. We appreciate it. I appreciate that. Hey, uh, I appreciate you guys being here, and and thank you so much for taking the time. My and. And I don't know if, if 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 the viewers have watched our first episode. You know, this is what we we're, what we're trying to do in the show. We uh, bring cases that we have worked upon uh, on JusticeNews.net and and just try to you know pick them apart piece by piece and see what's going on with these guys and with the evidence and the facts that we have in regard to their innocence, and then just talk about the case. And Trisha, you being a paralegal for over three decades now, and with you know, with the work that you've done in the justice in uh, sector, and uh, Trent, you being an expert in the court procedures, and you fought and won your case from inside the prison, and you know, uh, uh, if those who uh, are aware about um, Taylor versus Riojas, the Supreme Court case, that uh, you know, God help you win and change the way qualified immunity is going to be uh, addressed going forward. So having Trent, you on the team and having Trisha, you on the team just opens up the door to have a bigger uh, and deeper analysis on, on these cases that we have. We have about 22 cases uh, on justice news, and it'll be interesting that, you know, in this show, in the inside art project, we can pick them up. And then, and then see, uh, you know, did we forget something? Are we in the right direction? Uh, and the facts and the evidence that we have is that, is that the, you know, is that the, is that the correct data to design a strategy for John Merritt and his family so that eventually they can find and achieve justice? So, with that said, um, you know, anyone can go. Uh, to uh, justiceforjohnmerritt.com. It should, it should bring them to this page. I hope you guys can see this page. Yes, thank you. Yes. So um, the, the backstory about John uh, is something that I think that uh, would be very interesting to hear from John's own words. So let me just play a little clip of the show that we did, the first episode that we did with John Merritt, and let's just see... Hello. Um, what was being talked about. Hello, Imran. 
Hey, John, we did it. Can you guys hear this? Yes, yes sir. All right, so let's do it. Hello. Hello, Imran. Hey, John, we did it. Okay, finally got through after the second try. Thank God, thank God. It's good to hear from you, man. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 I'm listening. It's, it's been a long time since I used the phone, so my phone manners aren't up to par. I mean, it's been 11 years. <laughs> I don't even know if people can begin to understand what's going on with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a situation where I'm used to it because I've lived it and I'm still living it, but I'm not fully aware of the impact it's having on anybody in society. Because, you know, I'm, if, when I talk about it, it's just, you know, it's there, it happened. But for somebody else, you know, it seems, well, I, I can't really put myself inside somebody else's mind or their emotions, their thoughts, and see how it impacts them. The thing is that there's not a lot of information about John Merritt and what, whatever there's out there, it's all from the prosecutors and, and from the courts. And I mean, you know, I think we're old enough to understand that we just can't believe everything that they're saying. So there has to be data out there using the technology that talks about who is John as a human being. Okay, okay. You know, I, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for calling me. But tell me something. How, how are you doing, John? Well, you, you got, I guess, one thing you have to understand is that what I did, I took adversity and used it as a stepping stone to grow as a person and as a soul. So the harder it got, the more I grew. I think I found out that I'm the type of soul that if it's easy and gentle, then there may not be no deep soul searching going on within me. But I had one of the hardest things to ever hit me in my life and getting found guilty for something that I'm innocent of and then originally being sentenced to die, I had no, no choice but to literally go within myself and figure out you know, the meanings of all the heavy questions, what is life about, why am I here, what is the purpose of all of this, and how do I overcome it and find some sense of stability within myself until I can finally see daylight and get this justice incorrected. It's been a long ride, a very long ride. And 17 people that I loved and cared about have died. I went from being a young man in middle age to into, I guess, what you would call the older senior years, although I don't feel like somebody who's 64, and I'm certainly not built like somebody my age. I'm built like somebody much younger and the energy level's much higher but I think that's because of my choices as to how I choose to carry myself in here, what I choose to engage in. No drugs, no alcohol, no foolishness, uh, just exercising and uh, meditating, studying spiritual truths, and focusing on the law and getting myself out. And you have one minute remaining. Man. Wow, I didn't know these were such short calls. I thought they were much longer. I, I hate to say this, but that that's just the truth. But is it possible for you to call back? Uh, yeah, there's uh, maybe later there's a line of people waiting. <laughs>
You're listening to Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. Welcome to Fair Play. I'm your host, Ron Kaziki. John Merritt is currently serving a life sentence for the 1982 murder of Daryl Davis, which occurred in Lake City, Florida, while John was at work, allegedly. John is at the Appalachian Correctional Institution in Sneeds, Florida, and for the last almost four decades, John has denied this and maintained his innocence, except for the time when he was coerced to make the plea deal so they don't kill him by putting him on death row again. And joining me today is John Merritt. John, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you. This is John Merritt. As Imran said, everything he just repeated is true. In 1982, on March 1st, I believe, a man named Daryl Davis was found murdered in his home. Well, at that time, I worked for Jim Clampett at one of his Chevron stations by the I-75 overpass on 90 West in Lake City, Florida. Yeah. When four years later I was indicted for this case, I told my lawyer to contact Mr. Clampett to see if he had the four-year-old time cards to verify that I would have been working for him at the time this crime occurred. Yeah. Martin Black was the attorney appointed to represent me by the court. Martin Black told me with a straight face, so I believed him at the time, he said that Mr. Clampett told him that he no longer had the time cards and therefore he didn't want to testify to something that might not be true. Yeah. I didn't find out until decades later that Attorney Black was just straight up lying to me when an investigator finally talked to Jim Clampett he said no lawyer had ever talked to him, and no lawyer had especially ever talked to him about a murder case. He said that, uh, yes, I don't have the time cards in that time period, so it's possible that he may have been working for me, but I can't say one way or another. Yeah. Beacon Investigations found some reports that indicated that Neil Knightham, the sheriff's investigator who's been coming to the parole hearings against me. This is my 36th year in prison for this. This is my third parole hearing coming up, and he's came to the last two telling lies on me to cause an adverse reaction from the parole commissioner so that I won't be released. Well, he was supposed to have checked my alibi, and he never checked it. So I don't know if he is the one that told the lie to my attorney, and that's what came out of my attorney's mouth or if my lawyer just made it up regardless my lawyer the one appointed to represent me straight up lied to me about talking to my former boss he made it seem like he had talked to him so according to the court documents no physical or dna evidence tied you to the crime scene 
Not even circumstantial evidence. So how did you end up in prison? Well, according to the body search warrant and the affidavit, they stated that over 100 latent prints and hairs from someone unknown were found at the crime scene. Conventional forensic testing by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement in 1986 proved that the close to three dozen hairs found on the deceased person's outer clothing, a broken glass where the killers gained entrance to the residence, a kitchen stove, I think on a rifle. None of them matched mine. None of them, those didn't match the deceased victims either. They were from an unknown person or persons, and none of the fingerprints matched mine. Yeah. What do you What do you make out of this? But what I did, what I listened to, what I, what I did listen to, is how there was no evidence against this man whatsoever. They basically railroaded him off of a statement in order for somebody else to get less time, which is basically almost illegal. Um, in certain aspects, like your crime partner can't tell on you in Texas, like um, unless there's corroborating evidence to go with it. They can't just go and say, hey, he did this or he did that um, just so they can get less time. In Texas, they actually have to have corroborating evidence. Um, I haven't just studied the corroborating evidence rules that Florida has, but basically they railroaded this man. Um, and after they railroaded him, they refused to review it or they refused to accept and acknowledge the fact that, hey, they messed up. So they stayed with it. Right. So, Trisha, what do you think? What I could pick up from what was being said, it definitely is deserving of a lot of exposure and a lot of attention in that um, just, just, the, the, just the misconduct. What is the first thing that comes uh, on top of your head when you heard John Merritt's story? I, I'm, it's not abnormal for me to, to hear these, these stories, these types of stories, because of the line of work that I'm in. Um, off the top of my head and from what I have researched so far on Mr. Merritt, it is a gross, gross travesty of justice with that, what has been done to that man. And what he has against him or what, what, it, what it will be going against him is, is quite literally time. The weirdest thing about this guy's case, John Merritt's case, um, which I call uh, one of the last remaining Americans in Florida who's still holding on to his sanity despite being wrongly imprisoned for more than 36 years for a crime he says he did not commit. And the evidence backs him up. There's a gentleman by the name of Robert Duvaz who was exonerated after uh, 35 plus years of wrongful conviction in Florida, Tampa. And I heard about him and I reached out uh, the innocence organization that was uh, handling his case. And they never connected me to Robert, which is weird. And then eventually I did my own research and I hooked up with Sunny at the Sunny Center in Tampa, who herself fought. Uh, uh, wrongful conviction on death row and her husband as well and was exonerated and she set up the center where Robert was staying and I contacted Sunny and she connected me to Robert and I said hey I want to interview you your story of wrongful conviction is is highly uh, dramatic and and uh, he said I, I can't even speak man I, I need some time to calibrate myself I don't even know what's going on I it's been 36 years so I said okay Robert Tell me, uh, you take your time, but give me the name of that one guy that you promised while you were getting out that you would help and you think he's innocent. And he said, John Merritt. And I said, okay, I need his J I need his ID. So I took his ID 
And I contacted John and that was history. That's how your collaboration began. That's how the collaboration began. And I interviewed him. And um, the first thing, guys, that came right uh, on top of uh, uh, my uh, investigation on uh, the case of John Merritt um, was this report uh, done by Beacon Investigations, uh, which is on his website, justiceforjohnmerritt.com. This is an 18-page report here. uh, Can you guys see this? Yeah, I read it and I've got it up on my computer screen. Yeah. So this is from Beacon Investigation Solutions, you know, and this is done by uh, Dennis uh, Forrester. He's the CEO and uh, the man behind Beacon Investigator Solutions, which is a legit certified in all 50 states uh, PI firm, private investigation, investigative firm. has uh, been in business for the past 35 plus years. So I came across this this investigative report from uh, Dennis Forrester, who had been working on John's case since 2017 or 2016 uh, for a couple of, for over a decade. And I read this report and this report clearly highlights what's going on. So I'm just going to read a a little bit from this, you know, Uh, 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 Mr. Dennis Forrester on behalf of John and the investigation that they didn't, that they did uh, years and years of investigation, their report came out. So he said, Dear Commissioner Coonrod, please allow me a few minutes of your time to introduce you to Mr. John Merritt, a Florida Department of uh, Corrections inmate who is currently serving a life sentence for a 1982 murder, alleged murder, I would say, of, of Daryl Davis, which occurred in Columbia County, Florida. Later this year, you will meet Mr. Merritt when his case comes comes up for a parole review hearing. Now, this report was done before the parole review, which just occurred on April 27, which was a disaster. But the report uh, does not uh, lose its value because of that. Uh, before introducing you to Mr. John Merritt and sharing the details of, of the crime for which he's wrongfully convicted. See, right off the bat, Dennis is saying that. Allow me to introduce you to Beacon Investigative Solutions. And this is important because we, we need to understand right off the bat that this is this investigative company is not a joke. It's a serious uh, investigative company, uh, you know, with many years uh, of evidence uh, of their hard work behind them. Right. So Beacon International Group, Beacon Investigative Solutions is a national uh, private uh, investigative firm headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Beacon is currently licensed to conduct investigations in 43 states, including Florida. We also maintain the corporate authority to transact business in Florida. Among Beacon's many investigative specialities, we pride ourselves in the impartial representation of the wrongfully convicted in their search for justice through post-conviction appeals and other post-conviction relief efforts. It is through this avenue that we were first introduced to Mr. John Merritt in 2016. Over the past five years, we have spent hundreds of hours investigating John Merritt's case. Now, remember, guys, this report, he's saying five years. This is from a decade ago. So just keep that in mind. Right. We have, we have spent hundreds of hours investigating John Merritt's case. We have combed through thousands of pages of records and have amassed boxes upon boxes of documents which I am also approval. of. Our investigation uh, proves that John Merritt is not only innocent, but the government that was supposed to uphold due process and see Daryl Davis' murderer brought to justice 
had no interest in justice being served in this case. So right here, you know, I can go on and on, uh, uh, but I should. Although not a stellar citizen, John Merritt was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Daryl Davis due to systemic governmental corruption. He continues to be victimized by the system and those responsible for prosecuting him. At John Merritt's 2015 parole review hearing, the prosecutor Robert Deckel, along with the lead investigator Neil Nidham, blatantly misrepresented the facts of the Daryl Davis murder to the parole board in such a grandiose manner that it sickens one to think that either of these two individuals were ever tasked with the responsibility to uphold justice in the state of Florida. Basically, uh, Dennis Forrester is saying that these guys fucked up. That's the simply put way, and there's no other way to say it. But if I want to swallow my cuss words and just continue and say, it's a sobering statement to speak about two officials, but one that I solemnly stand behind, having dedicated more than 40 years of my own life to public safety and the private investigative fields, it is my sincere hope that you will take 15 minutes of your time to read over John Merritt's case in preparation for his parole review hearing later this year, which occurred on April 27, by the way, guys. And it ended in the parole uh, commissioners giving John, adding another year. So his, his uh, possible release date is 2067, you know, uh, which is uh, death by incarceration because he's al already in, uh, he's, uh, in his 60 plus. He's 65, I think. And so that's death by incarceration because he'll be over 100 years by that time. And then Dennis goes on in explaining the entire case within, with this 18 uh, report, which is available on justiceforjohnmerritt.com. So I don't want to waste uh, any one of your time in saying that, hey, I stand behind this because this guy is innocent and, you know, I can prove it. Of course, I mean, God only knows what occurred, but whatever that they're alleging this guy did is not the truth. You know, the fact that this guy's case was picked up four years after the murder uh, occurred is hilarious to even think about that John had something to do with this. And as you go in the case, you'll figure out that even testimonies were just bullshit because some of these guys are snitches that try to implicate him were not even in the same prison where they said that they were together with John when John made these alleged confessions. He was not even the same prison. So uh, uh, there's a statement from John's sister that talks about this. But before I, I give you the microphone, I just want to say that there is not a lot of data on John. So uh, there was something done by Edward Olshaker, uh, you know, from, as you can see, 2007 guys can you see that yeah yeah 2007 yeah that's when edward Olshaker and i can't find him I've, I've tried he wrote this article on john and and was john merritt wrongfully convicted of murder this was a question in 27 in 2007 and it still stands you know and, and then this was the only guy who did something and then uh, uh you know and then we had another case uh, another gentleman by the name of Robert Cracknell, you know, he also did something here uh, on John. In fact, this guy, you know, he uh, flew. He's based out. He was based out of London. I tried to connect with him. His wife said that he's with Alzheimer's, so he doesn't remember anything. But as you can see, he went to John from London to meet John and figure out what was going on. And, you know, uh, 
you know, the best way that he says it, it, it you know, um, is that, you know, any serious investigator, journalist reading the transcript of the trial and depositions would immediately see the need for the whole matter to be brought to public scrutiny. One particularly strange twist was the fact that John Merritt chose the psychic newspaper to ask for help for two weeks beforehand. The same newspaper had carried a front story featuring Bob Cracknell, which prompted Molly to write to him. Molly was a lady that came out of blue and to help John. These are all people that he has no idea who they are. Just, you know, they're just being sent being since that time. You know, Cracknell has communicated with John Merritt on several occasions and now understands why he approached that particular publication. During the 19 or so years he has been incarcerated for a crime he confessed he confessed to committing for the crime he confessed to committing, he spent much time in isolation and solitude. Now remember, confessed to committing because he was put on death row. And as you'll go in the interview, you'll realize that when they put him on death row, the attorney uh, coerced John to take the plea deal. Otherwise, they said they're going to kill him. So he took that, and probably that's why he's still he's still stuck. But the the data speaks for itself. I mean, you know, there's no way that you know all these documents that we have here. You know, I mean, if if anyone has uh, any time or the patience to go through all these tons of documents that prove the fact that John Merritt was not there at the time of the murder. He was at work and he had evidence and his attorney did not reach out for that alibi, as you heard in that interview. So right off the bat, something is wrong. And the guys, uh, the snitches who testified against him got plea deal, got deals in return. And also the one of the guys who testified against him that, you know, allegedly John said to him in a prison and he confessed they were not even in the same prison. So how much of, of this kind of stuff come uh, uh, have you come across in your uh, career, uh, Trent? Um, a lot. Uh, a whole bunch. I know, um, especially with the death row part, I know several people that were on death row and came off and still and admitted to it just for the simple fact that they said that they did not want to go back to death row because that is one of the harshest punishments or the harshest treatments anybody can uh, undergo for the simple fact that you sit there in your cell all day and you wait to die. You get a date. You know the day you die. And um, so I can understand the, hey, man, you know what? I, I still have a choice to live right here. And they already gave it to me once. What happens if they give it to me twice? Now, with the, the false allegations, and the courts always try to use this, well, you were – you were given an opportunity to be uh, to be found guilty or innocent by a jury uh, of your peers. So therefore, whether you're innocent or guilty, hey, they made that decision already. And a lot of courts make that say that it basically almost word for word, like, hey, your jury uh, of your uh, a panel of your peers decided you did it, so you did it. You had your opportunity to prove you didn't do it, and they refused to go overturn it. Just like later on when people come back and write affidavits saying, hey, that this didn't happen or I didn't believe this was this way. They'll say, hey, no, you should have done that then. Now you're being coerced to do it and they'll overlook those affidavits. Exactly right. Because when they refuse, when they admit to that mistake, 
the checkbooks come out and they don't want the checkbooks to come out. Especially in a case like this, where this man has been gone 20 plus years, that's every single year they would have to pay this man a substantial amount of money and then admit that every time it was brought up and they shot it down, that they were wrong. It would kill the credibility, the credibility of a lot of those that were involved in trying to convict him. Trisha, uh, does this smell like uh, those cases where you absolutely have false eyewitness testimony? From where I said, absolutely, yes. Yeah, because because look at this. Here, uh, 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 Skinner, in, in, claiming, in claiming Merritt had confessed to the murder, Skinner and Hopkins gave differing accounts of the circumstances of his alleged confession. Prosecutor John Turhune, anticipating the defense noting their conflicting stories, even acknowledged his weakness while attempting to portray the small matter. Their stories were a little bit different as that they were walking or in a car, whether or not Mr. Skinner had gone up to the house or not. To the extent that their stories partially matched, they could have been coordinated even when the two men were in separate prisons through communications with Skinner's sister, Hopkins, wife, Belinda, who had 40 to 50 phone conversations with Hopkins during this key period. So what's going on here, to put that in perspective, there is a murderer and a co-conspirator, and that guy's married to the murderer's sister, and the sister heard these two guys confess and say that John Merritt, who they kind of knew, we, you know, let's just get him, railroaded. And none of that uh, was used as part of the evidence. Even the testimony of the sister was, was I think, taken out. Uh, um, you know, just because, you know, it would go against the whole case. So, uh, John's, uh, John's parole, just, uh, uh, John's parole hearing just finished on April 27. And, uh, just, uh, I just want you guys to have a look at, uh, have a look at Imran. Huh? What do you mean finished? On April 27th. Uh, yeah, uh, he, he, had, uh, he had a hearing. He went for the, before the board on April 27th. Yeah, he, he went uh, in front of the board, FCOR, the Florida Commission on Offender Review. Um, he went in front of them. So I just wanted you, I just wanted you guys to listen to a little bit of what happened at the parole uh, hearing. Okay. Uh, that that ended on uh, April 27th. Okay. Okay, so just check this out. Okay. You're listening to Fair Play, Fair Play on justicenews.net. My name is Fight all. Fight all. Item seven on page four, John Merritt. Would like to be heard on the merit case. Press star six now. Good morning. Morning. Members of the commission, this is this is Gray Thomas. I am counsel for Mr. Merritt for the purposes of this proceeding. I believe we also have um, Mr. Dennis Forrester, who's an investigator on the line, as well as uh, Darlene Roy, Mr. Merritt's sister. 
Good morning, commissioners. Good morning. We're going to put the case in the proper posture. We're taking up the matter of John Merritt. Before the commission, we have a subsequent interview that was conducted on October 11, 2021 at the Appalachian Correctional Institution East Unit. The commission investigator is recommending no change. Uh, good morning to each of you, uh, Mr. Thomas and the others who are on the line. Uh, for those of you who will be speaking in support, you'll have 10 minutes to share between, I believe, three people who are on the line. Uh, we can go in any order that you elect, but we'll let Mr. Thomas kind of marshal that process. Yes, thank you. And I, I would like to just po pose one brief question. Um, Mr. Forrester had submitted a report um, that I believe was received by the commission um, a number of days ago, and I submitted a written uh, argument that I was unable to get through Friday, but it, I did get received on Monday, and I wanted to make sure whether the commission had those materials, whether the commissioners have had the appropriate chance to review them, and because of the time was close, if the commissioners are not familiar with what is what has been submitted most recently, those two items, I would ask for a continuance uh, for one month if the commission has, we're prepared to go forward. Well, this is Commissioner Davison, and I have reviewed everything that has been submitted in the John Merritt case, and I think I am sufficiently prepared to vote today. Uh, Commissioner Wyatt? I, I agree. I, I, too, have received the documentation. Okay. Uh, both commissioners have uh, received and reviewed all the documents. <coughs> to vote in today's case. Well, thank you very much. Then I will uh, um, be able to get started. Um, there's no question that the event in this case that brought us here was a 1982 um, homicide that was a terrible crime um, committed in the course of a burglary of Mr. Darrell Davis. Um, Mr. Merritt has been in custody for 36 years um, and has had a number of um, procedural avenues um, that, that have been pursued, including a previous um, review, uh, well, a couple of previous reviews, the most recent one in 2015. Uh, at this point, Mr. Um, Merritt uh, has received one DR in any recent years, and it is a situation where the cellmate has ended up submitting a statement well back then to the effect that the contraband, which was a weapon, um, was the cellmate, not, not Mr. Merritt's, and that Mr. Merritt had no knowledge. We now have in place um, some options for a release plan in terms of transitional housing with halfway houses in the Tampa area and the DeLand area. Mr. Merritt's sister, um, is also uh, willing to house him and provide him work um, on her property, which is in the state of Texas. And I understand that that's a different state, so there are interstate compact issues that would have to be addressed for that. Regardless, um, Mr. Merritt has um, completed a number of reentry um, uh, related issues, including acceptance into these. Uh, transitional housing programs. He has completed numerous vocational education 
uh, classes in masonry, welding, auto mechanics, carpentry. He's also done victim awareness and anger management. Um, the and, and but I would also initially like to um, address some statements that were made by former law enforcement at the hearing in 2015. Um, and of course, the procedural uh, process that the commission employs does not provide for us a rebuttal opportunity. Um, the, the statements were made that Mr. Merritt has made threats to, to his family and to law enforcement. There's never been any evidence of that. There are no charges ever been brought, not even disciplinary reports. And um, Mrs. Roy, Mr. Merritt's sister, is here to uh, refute any contentions that she's ever been uh, uh, the, the target of, of such statements. Um, the, the statements um, that, that, that he would, um, would kill again are, are, is, is nothing but speculation based on um, a situation where there is um, Mr. Merritt indeed was convicted of a homicide. He was um, a property criminal back in the day. Um, the, and he ended up pleading guilty after the Supreme Court of Florida had unanimously reversed his previous conviction um, and he pled guilty to avoid the risk of an even more harsh uh, sentence based on bad advice uh, from his his attorney at the time to avoid the risk of trial. Um, the the former prosecutor made made statements to the effect that this was the most brutal crime he'd ever seen. When this prosecutor is the same one who successfully secured a death sentence. Uh, for Ted Bundy and the murder of Kimberly Leach in Lake City, and so is well familiar with numerous, numerous vicious crimes. Um, and, and so the, the 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 exaggeration is misplaced here. Um, the at, at at the moment, I would like to interject very briefly um, and and ask Miss um, Darlene Roy, are you on the line, Miss Roy? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, uh, please uh, tell the commissioners where you live. I live in Somerset, Texas, uh, just south of San Antonio, Texas. And, and are you related to John Merritt? Yes, I am his younger sister. And um, would you be in a position uh, yourself to provide assistance? Mr. Merrick, that he be released in regard to housing and uh, Yes, I would. Um, are you there? Pardon me? I'm sorry. It's, it's not like I lost you. Yes, I would. My husband, my family here uh, are all in support and are 100% willing to help him provide housing, help finding a job, a roof over his head, food, whatever he needed. All right. Um, all right. Thank you. Um, the, uh, 
Now, I would also like to, to go very briefly through this. We presented uh, some evidence previously in 2015, and, and there is additional evidence today that even people who maintain their innocence can appropriately be considered for parole. We had submitted the case of an individual in Freddie Cox, an individual named Freddie Cox in the state of New York, who was granted parole release um, back around that time frame, uh, despite maintaining his innocence. More recently, the state of Missouri uh, this year has granted parole to a Mr. Polite um, in, a, in a situation where he has also, and still does, maintained his um, Now, you've also, um, I, I believe, had a chance to review um, the the Beacon Investigations uh, Dennis Forrester report, which um, sets forth that there were no forensic evidence at all regarding uh, Mr. Merritt connecting him to this crime in terms of prints, DNA, hair. The prints were conclusively not Mr. Merritt's. There is no DNA. Um, hair was taken from him during the execution of a search warrant that uh, has been lost, so cannot be compared. One of the fellows who was involved in the investigation, a Gerald Skinner, uh, admitted to his now former wife that he's the one who killed Mr. Davis. Um, Mr. Merritt was also implicated um, at, by testimony from a Greg Hopkins who told uh, law enforcement that his memory, and this is from a, a law enforcement report, that his memory could possibly get a lot better if he got no prosecution for the crimes against Mr. Davis, and he thereupon uh, implicated Mr. Merritt, claiming Mr. Merritt had confessed to him in a jailhouse in Virginia when the jail own the jail's own records document they were not even in the, in that jail together at the same time at all. Um, the, and, and then also there was a cold case review conducted in December 2008, years later, after Mr. Merritt was convicted, um, and it has found the case minimally solvable because of the lack of evidence of conviction to convict anyone. And the, uh, there, there is, and noting that there is no evidence connecting Merritt with the Davis crime only this, the testimony that is provably false of Mr. Hopkins. Um, Mr. Now, if Mr. Thomas? Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll note that the 10 minutes have expired. And so if you Ma could just uh, give us maybe a, a, a 15 second wrap up, uh, we'll have to stay within the time frames. I understand it. Thank you. Uh, this is a serious crime. Mr. Merritt's been in custody for 36 years. He has he has good institutional adjust, adjustment and self-improvement. He has parole release plan, and under the totality of the circumstances, he should be granted parole for a, a, or a vastly accelerated further review date um, and a transition for um, for the to return to the community thank you
Thank you. We will now move to any uh, testimony in opposition in the John Merritt case. Is there anyone present or on the line who would like to speak in opposition in the case of John Merritt? Okay. Hearing none, we will proceed with the vote in this case, and I will start. I've had the uh, opportunity to review the John Merritt case in its entirety. I at the outset, we had a discussion as to whether the case needed to be continued. Uh, both Commissioner Wine and I uh, agreed that it did not. I will note for the record that this case for a subsequent interview and review had been previously continued uh, from December 8, 2021, from January 26, 2022, and from March 23, 2022. And uh, those uh, multiple continuances have given us sufficient opportunity to review this case um, thoroughly. I will note that Mr. Merritt is on his fourth commitment, A, B, C, and D. The offenses that are under consideration here today are first-degree murder, Burglary while armed, burglary of a dwelling, aggravated assault, two counts, kidnapping while armed, two counts, all very uh, serious offenses. At the full and complete review of this case, my vote is to disagree with the recommendation of no change. I have a 12-month extension based on unsatisfactory institutional conduct which was set to new PPRD at March 13, 2167. I would set this for a seven-year review of August 2028. Reasons for the extended interview are use of a deadly weapon to a firearm, unreasonable risk to others, multiple separate offenses, and unsatisfactory institutional conduct. Commissioner Wyant. Thank you, sir. Uh, and thank you all for your time and attention this morning as it relates to John Merritt. Um, and as Commissioner Davidson stated, I, I too have reviewed the case in its entirety, and I agree with the vote as stated by Commissioner Davidson. Right, thank you, everyone, for calling in. Okay, the next case we're going to hear is item 8 on page 10. Hi, right, how you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, I... Uh, I just had my I, I just had my head in my hands and I was just talking to God. So yeah. yeah um, so yeah, I don't know. What what would you uh, say? Yeah, um why I'm calling you is because our internet is down, so I'm not I don't wanna go to a library. I'm asking could you email Johnny or Jay Pay and let him know what what the decision was and as soon as our internet gets back up I will uh, text him and what have you and also just to, to let him know this isn't the end there are other options and right now um, Dennis and I have discussed them prior because uh, in life you always have a plan B if this happens then than that. Uh, I had hoped there was one that would uh, be a decent human being and see um, 
see all the garbage, but they didn't. So, um, you know, we know now, right now, that the parole board is going to stick to the standard um, thing and um, not see, like, blatantly anybody with half a brain would know the they were crooked there. Johnny was just unfortunately caught up in it, and um, they're not going to see past any anything that's true. So I know that now we're probably going to have to do stuff actively. This isn't the end. It's just, you know, we turn and we go somewhere else. Now, I know you know that my husband's seriously ill. Uh, if I, I just can't in good conscience leave him and go participate in protest and all that, but I'm willing to, um, you know, get out there and speak on things, you know, um, and keep working at it, you know. But let Johnny know that this isn't the end. There are other things, and we're working on it because I feel bad because he's there alone. And again, he's going to have to get news that, you know, the justice system, uh, you know, failed him again. This is Fair Play on JusticeNews.net. I don't know what I can say after all this, guys. Um, got to keep the faith. That's what she tried to do right there. That's what you hear the family trying to do. Prisoners, and from being on that inside of that, the inside for as long as I did, I understand when they come in with that time where they're never, ever supposed to get out and they have to settle for that. But they'll hold the faith for their loved ones when most of the time they know it's over, you know, they might tell me like, Hey, yeah, I know I'm not going home, but I'm not going to tell my mama that, or I'm not going to tell my sister that. And that's been my experience too, Trent, is that it ends up the family could potentially, I don't want to say drop the ball, but because of what, for whatever reason, they're not able to actively participate in like a, a direct, a direct campaign or a ground event. And I see that a lot where it, the inmate ends up being the, support it's a kind of a cruel uh turn of events but they end up being the family source of support and if if they if, if they're if they don't receive some type of you know post-conviction relief that they end up supporting emotionally the family member i've seen that a lot yeah what happens the most too and when somebody first comes in with that type of time their family's there but then you have to think if he did 30 plus years, his family or other people's families in similarly situated situations have their children to raise and things to do. So their family tends to fall off somewhat. People tend to fall off. But, you know, as you get older, you become more family oriented and you want to you want to reach out and back to them. By that time, the person that's in there doing that sentence has come to accept the fact that, hey, this is it. And then when their family comes back, like I used to tell them all the time, hey, you're going to be here for a while, but they're going to come back. If they fall off, they'll come back. They're just living life and they're having to take care of things out there. 
And when they come back, the family's like, I want to see you, man. I really miss you. It's been a long time. And you just kind of have to ride with them. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, hey, this is going on. This is going on. And sometimes you have to shoot them the bullshit, even though you know that, hey, this is not. But then deep down, you're, you're, you're really hoping that, well, maybe what they're doing will have some justice, some, something that will get me out there where I can see them. But if not, I know I fought a good fight. This case, there are so many, so many inaccuracies, and you know, from drug trafficking, the the sheriff in 1982 was charged with drug, drug with drug trafficking racketeering. There's evidence tampering. There's um, senior law enforcement and court officials that have that have been charged with you know crimes at that time. Um, and Skinner was, and, and as far as evidence goes, as far as uh, DNA biological evidence Skinner was never excluded he was never 100% excluded from evidence no, so, I mean there just lots of lots of mistakes lots of mistakes in addition to just the obvious I mean with every year somebody is incarcerated the chances of being um, exonerated or receiving some type of post-conviction relief are dramatically reduced with every year that they're in there so when I when I said earlier, timing time is a problem. Time is a problem. A lot of time has passed, and there's been a lot of advances since then. And so that's a hurdle. And I did not. I, I'm sorry if I interrupted, but I just wanted to make sure I had written those points down. I wanted to make sure that I brought them up. No, you're right. Time has advanced, and and the fact that uh, this guy uh, he didn't get the benefit of that advancement. By the way, you know he he's still. Um, in the 1980s and then you know he's handwriting and then i mean that's that's what what he can do but people on the outside uh also couldn't um come forward you know according to john merritt he's reached out to all the names that you can think of i mean i think 37 years is a pretty long time to sit down and reach out to all these so-called celebrities and uh newsmakers or people who say that they rally for justice and for the innocent. And John has sent me uh, names of all of them and he wants me to publish them when the time comes. Um, and in fact, you know, just for our audience, uh, before we we go, we also want to let them know that we were doing something special that we're, uh, you know, we have these letters from the prison and especially, uh, you know, in, when, when it comes to John Merritt, you know, he's been he's been really uh, actively writing, writing these letters. So we would we would uh, ask the viewers or the listeners to check out uh, justiceforjohnmerritt.com and just go through his blogs, you know, uh, read some of the stuff that uh, he's saying. You guys heard the uh, the commission report. This is what John is saying about that, you know. He's saying how the Florida parole commissioners committed self-implosion. And he beautifully explains everything. And in all of these blocks, you know, you know, I'm not playing games. I will fight to the end. Release the blocks. This was a block that he sent me before, uh, immediately after the parole. And if you go through them, you know, you can see the honesty and you can see the facts. And Trent, when a man is being accused of a crime, what else does he have with him except the evidence to prove his innocence? 
that's what you don't i mean you don't really have anything else if they won't accept what you have i mean you just got to keep pushing and look for the next person the next biggest person okay well who was bigger in stature or stature as far as persona or famous than this person that just tried to push the issue for me and you keep trying to move up that ladder and find the next person that has a little more influence than that person um what I'm not understanding, though, is how the parole board, and they even say, the, the people in the parole board right there even said that we have, extre- we have extremely gone over this case and everything like that. But in um, how can they do that? I'm not, I'm not understanding how they do that without actually having him in there or his family in there or anybody prior to the date that we just heard. Because... There, uh, in Chapter 947 of the Florida's Commission on Offender Review, Conditional Release, Control Release, Parole, which is 947.06, it states that all matters relating to the granting, denying, or revoking of parole shall be decided in a meeting at which the public shall have the right to be present. Well, anything you discuss is relevant. If anything that you reviewed, looked at, or discussed concerning this man's parole, it played a big, substantial factor on your decision so therefore it should have been done in the public in a in a public type setting where nothing was said or done prior to that but by you doing that you really violated this man's 14th amendment right to the uh, constitution and which gives him a liberty interest in that and i mean all per it's Every prisoner is not entitled to the 14th Amendment right to a liberty interest, depending on the situation that they've been placed in prison for. But when you put it in black and white and you put it in your rules, you grant me the right to that liberty interest. And I'm allowed to have it enforced for you to uphold it. Right. So, I mean, guys, in one of his blogs, he clarifies, you know, uh, the 16 perjuries given to the grand jury to indict me man i mean how much more clarity do we need and as far as what you were talking about the parole commissioners well look at what john is saying himself he's saying a beacon investigative solutions is a national firm whose product is investigative truth beacon submitted an 18-page report on august 16 2021 to all the florida parole commissioners concerning john merritt an innocent man concerning his case in 2021 and 22 beacon proved the ex-sheriff's investigator neil nidem and ex-prosecutor bob decker lied lied to the commissioners at merritt's 2015 hearing by the way this whatever was decided here is what is used again to uh, con- to further this wrongful conviction in April this year. Does I mean, that mean the commissioners are now complicit in this fraud that these gentlemen pulled upon the commission? They, they actually admitted to being what you just said, complicit into it for the simple fact that they held hearings prior to the public hearing. They held hearings against their own rules and regulations in violation of the 14th Amendment right. And that's being said because your rules, you state, your legislator 
put in black and white that this is how this would be ran. And by you not doing this, you violated this man's due process rights and you became complicit with everything else. And therefore yourself, right. Yeah. Therefore yourself, you've committed perjury, committed fraud. You've done several things that are illegal just to not go against something that was already found that was fabricated. Yeah. That's a, so, good point. That's a very good point, Trent. Very good point. So Trisha, check this to what uh, he was saying um, to what uh, Trent is talking about. Let me just open this in a new tab. I, I want to show you guys uh, something. And, you know, and, and, and while you're doing that, if you don't mind me saying this, um, how you said they're complicit and how they're, you know, they're, they're, made, they're, you know, they're holding, holding true to their story. And that is indicative of a lot of the cases that I, that, that I'm, I'm currently working with right now. Most times than not, they're already convicted before the police get to the alleged scene of the incident or before the state has the opportunity to conduct a full investigation. They've, it, they're, it's, it's proven fact. Yeah. If it looks like a duck and, you know, and talks like a duck, then it must be a duck. That's usually what happens. They, they make, they rest to judgment before they even have a chance to really investigate it. They usually, if they have one person that they're going to, that they're going to focus in on the, of interest, they just remain with that one person often at the expense of others and the freedom of the one who actually committed the crime. And look what they did. This is a letter from the commissioners that I received because I asked them that at the uh, at the first letter, it said this at the commission meeting held on 323. And I asked them that this was pushed to this. So. Why did they do this? Was something decided here because your presumptive parole release date was modified to 2167 on this date? So when I asked them for clarification, this is what they sent me. They didn't say anything. They just cut this out and and wrote this. Guys, can you see this? Yes. Is, I, I mean, is there an original sheet with the actual, with that stamp signed? Yeah. Right without, them, with, without them, with that date signed on there? Um, 20th day of May. Um, Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, let me, uh, let me. Uh, Could you be so kind as to read the um, language that you're referring to? I'm having a tough time focusing in on that. Okay, so let me, let me read that again. Uh, and, and also let me uh, keep sharing it. So in case somebody else wants to. Uh, well, read have, it. And there's, there was, there was a string of murders that happened around the same time that they think whoever was responsible for the Davis murder was also maybe possibly responsible for the McRae murders. And it was not fully, that was not fully investigated either. But what um, we do know, what we do know is that John Merritt was incarcerated at the time of those murders, but they, exactly. they had, the same, had the, same, the same pathology. The murder had the same pathology as, as the murder that took place with Mr. Davis. So, you know, that, that, that should be noted too, that that wasn't fully, fully vetted and um, should not be ruled out. Absolutely true. That's absolutely correct what you just said. And here, 
as you guys can see, now this was the letter. This is what I had received. Yeah, at first with Mr. Gary Davis's signature and the stamp. And now when I received the second part, two days back, this line is cut out. I have an original letter without this line cut out that Trent talked about. I have that too. Could you read me the line, read to me the, what the line that has been, what, what the line said before they conveniently. Yeah. So it says, uh, um, the commission does not affirm the commission's, the commission does not affirm the commission's investigators' recommendations. I mean, who the hell do you affirm? Whose recommendations do you affirm? Not even your own? Okay. You can you can listen to the investigation of Beacon and affirm that, but no, the commission does not affirm the commission's investigators' recommendation and de determines the case as follows. Change in presumptive par parole release date as follows. Extend presumptive parole release date by 12 months. Uh, upon unsatisfactory institutional conduct, even though we know that the gun that was allegedly found on him, his roommate accept, uh, 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 accepted that that was his, uh, uh, you know, man-made weapon or something, which they tried to put it on him. But because of that, they pushed him to uh, another year. At the commission meeting held on 3-23-2022, cut, there's a cut on this, and the corrected is 4-27-2022. Your presumptive parole release date was modified to 3-13-21-67. You will be re-interviewed for your subsequent interview during the month of August 2028. By the time they're dead. That's what they want. They all want to be, uh, you know, good dead and gone. Because they know if John Merritt comes out, he's going to sue everyone's ass all the way to Timbuktu. And rightfully so. Um, That's why they're doing this. They're scared because they're liars. They're scared. And to follow up on, on a point that that Trent had um, was was speaking about, as far as, you know, after the fact confession or jailhouse confession or whatever you want to call it, call it what you want to call it. Um, I think that's one of the biggest travesties, one of the biggest disgraces of, of the platform that we work and the most, one of the most frustrating um, challenges that I, that I find is when I have somebody that comes to me and says, I have evidence. I have somebody who has signed an affidavit and um, willing to testify. And there is people ready to come forward but yet our inmates are still sitting there. They're still fighting for the life when it should be a no-brainer. There's evidence that there's evidence that proves otherwise. And if somebody's willing to sign an affidavit and testify, those are that's what we look for as we, you know, when we're researching cases. Am I right, Trent? I mean, it happens right. more times than not. There are people sitting behind bars right now with actual, you know, affidavits that the that an attorney has in possession that is releases him of any type of culpability, any type of responsibility in these matters. And just, that's yeah. one of the things that blows my mind is that they say the wheels of justice roll slowly. I get that, but I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, in fact, uh, some of our cases, uh, affidavit is sitting there. Keeman Taylor's case is there. Omar Muhammad's case is there. And 
Mahdi Ali's case there. I mean, there's so many. I can go on and on. But the thing is that, um, I mean, that's a, that that's, these are the things that we find synonymous with most of our cases. Prosecutorial misconduct, false eyewitness testimony, jailhouse snitching. I mean, <laughs> witness intimidation. Witness intimidation. Oh, yeah. These are the tactics that, that a justice department would use to put people in prison. The tactics. I mean, not not actual facts that, hey, somebody committed a crime. And according to John Merritt, the guy who, th who he thinks actually did it, which he can he says he can prove. Uh, they never got him and he's he's still out. And the same the same way Mr. Daryl Davis was murdered, the same way there were four more deaths after John was incarcerated. So who killed those guys? With the same with the same pathology. These these victims died the very same way that Mr. Davis did. Yeah. The modus operandi was the really, same. Really it really indicated that it was a Yeah. And it, what you know, and Trisha, what about the yeah. fact that uh, nowhere in the world have I heard that a cold case division in a police department would leave a file in a case saying that this case is still unresolved. We got the wrong guy in prison. And then nothing happens in Florida. I mean, what Florida is like kind of what Florida is. There is a method to their madness. There's a reason behind everything that they do. We will probably never know it, but they have. They have a very strong desire to keep him where he is. And mm -hmm. because they would most likely pay for the price in several ways if he were to be released. So they're, they've got a, they've got a dog in the fight, no matter how twisted and calculating it is. There, there's more, there's more there. There's if more you, there. if you look at it from certain angles, um, Okay, the sheriff was convicted of something. You know, you had all these people that were involved in this man's trial or accusations of him committing a murder that were found guilty or something, somewhat fraud, whatever it was along the lines. But if they go back and overturn that or they go back and actually look at it, look at the can of worms that opens up. Because if they did that to him, how many other people did they do that to? Then the same thing with this parole board. If right. you've done this to him and you went outside the public's uh, um, I, in order to hold the hearing after the, your rules say that you cannot do that and you purposely violated his 14th Amendment right to due process, how many other people have you done like that over the last 30 years, 20 years? That, that's what they're, that is what they're trying to. That's the can of worms. That's Pandora's box that they do not want open. And they're willing to sacrifice others for that. And they, they will get up tomorrow. They will eat breakfast. They will go to work. They will look at themselves in the mirror and they'll be just fine doing that. I'm talking about the public officials and law enforcement who are corrupt. They just fine doing that. No problem. And see by them, when they marked out that sheet and they came back and they put the other date on there. Okay. What you did right there was you purposely committed fraud. Now, you know, what you did was against the rules and regulations set by the uh, Florida state legislator. Okay. So in violating his, 14th Amendment, and then you come back and you crossed it out, you intentionally violated his rights. You, It wasn't accidentally or anything. No, you came with malice intent. Once you crossed that out to switch it up so that it wouldn't open any other can of worms. Now, that looks to be like a very brazen, bold thing for them to do if they're trying to contain, you know what I mean? That, that's pretty bold. 
That's mm. pretty. That, I've never seen this. I've never that's, seen this. That's, that's a lot of confidence for someone to have in the assurance that that man's going to remain where he needs, they think he needs to be. That took it. That was, that was. That's a lot of confidence for them to think that nobody knows what their rules and regulations are or is going to spot it. Right. Mm. Because it's not, okay, we can use John, we can use John say, okay, well, his rights were denied. But no, if you look at the bigger aspect of it, it says the public will be allowed to be in there when those uh, decisions are made that are relevant. You didn't let any of the public in there. You went against the people that pay you to do your job. Like the taxpayers pay them and they're supposed to have all this immunity. Well, the immunity goes out the window when you purposely with malice intent eradicate what was there in order to cover up for you. What do you think? What do you think? Uh, what do you think the family should do? Um, it wouldn't be the, I mean, I wouldn't, the family's already in enough hardship. You, you heard from speaking to them. I mean, if there's not too much more they can do, um, I believe it's something what we can do as far as pushing the issue, because now it's, Hey, everybody that's from Florida that has been before that parole board and all that, they need to start having their people hire people or private investigators and go back as far as possible and be like and request through the open information act i want all the paperwork for my parole hearing i want to see if there was other papers that were done the same way well y'all made a decision two months prior a month prior to then the decision that y'all gave the public and when that happens then it becomes the class act lawsuit that becomes something that'll rearrange the whole entire parole board and make them come back and add new legislation to it. Hmm. And if there was ever a prime example of of someone that needs direct campaign support, John Merritt is somebody because for two reasons. First reason is because he's deserving. Second reason is because of time, because the amount of time that has passed since that he's been in, incarcerated. And this is a case where media exposure and drawing the public's attention to it is going to be probably the most successful route to take. Well, because another thing also is um, if you actually use the avenue of the civil uh, of civil courts, John's entitled to another hearing with a partial uh, with a, a, a panel that's impartial. So, and saying that because this happened, if you can get, if you would, I want to say what I'm. It's forty two USC. Uh, section it's a declaratory judgment is what you would be seeking because they're a lot quicker you would be seeking that through the courts it might be no it's 28 usc um 22 uh, i'm not going to say I'm, I'm not going to put a definite number on it but um it's a declaratory judgment where you're asking the courts to decide immediately whether what they did was a violation of the constitutional rights hmm. but in saying that a person could Possibly, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to give you attorney's advice. I'm going to give you advice from somebody that got it wrong and cut in the field. Um, rule, uh, rule, Federal Rule Civil Procedure Rule 65 um, is the temporary restraining order and the preliminary injunction. 
So what his family could do is shoot one of those to the courts, but let them know, hey, I've already I've already sent in um, uh, for a declaratory judgment, but I'm also filing in 1983, but on my to go along with it, which come, comes at a later date. But right now, here's the evidence I have. Here's what the Constitution says. Here's what your book rules say. And this is what their book of rules say, which they violated clearly. And I asked that a, another hearing be held and which the temporary restraining order would be that right there. It would be to have them set aside whatever the parole said and run a whole new one with a whole nother panel that's impartial to what's actually going on. And that would give him another shot at a parole hearing pretty much immediately if the courts would overlook whatever bullshit they got going on as far as trying to railroad this man and give him a fair opportunity. What about a writ of mandamus? Um, the writ of mandamus can force them. I mean, it's, it, you have several that you could come under. Uh, that, I mean, you could even attack it under a writ of error. Hey, what y'all did was an error against y'all's rules or corporum lobuses or the vobuses, which a lot of courts still frown down upon them, but they're still usable. I believe the strongest, personally, the strongest thing that can be done is to seek a temporary restraining order against them for the simple fact that they did this. There's proof that they did this. And then coming under that, you're able to attach your 1983, which is your civil lawsuit for the violation of those rights. But the public also has the right to do that, too, because it states in there the public will allow, be allowed to be in there. Well, what you did to the public, which is however many people reside in Florida, you violated every one of their rights. <laughs>